Well, welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. And again, if you're on the live stream, we're glad that you are with us. Uh, we are even more glad that you're here in the room. So welcome to you. A um, couple of things. Our summer schedule is coming rapidly to an end. So listen, in three weeks, three weeks, August 20, we're back to 2 a.m. services, 9 and 11. A Sunday school for all ages in both hours. Evening service as a normal at 6 p.m. And again, I pulled out the call for some help. Uh, we see this morning we had someone respond to that uh, call, Scott, it's just tremendous. So help with the piano, uh, playing the piano, or even uh, in the evenings, uh, uh, if you play the guitar, that might be appropriate uh, also in the evening. So uh, just please see uh, Bruce and Sue if you can help uh, in that manner with the music. Uh, Kids for Truth begins uh, uh, one week earlier, so it's August 13th in the evening. Tonight we have our Backyard Summer Fellowship as normal. Uh, yesterday, Micah Setness and John Lauer uh, were wed, and I know some of you uh, made the trek up there and so had the uh, opportunity to be encouraged and uh, a blessing to them. All right, we're thankful for them. They're coming back here is, is the plan, and uh, we're excited to see them here in a few weeks. Now, the Japan team, they're off. Uh, I sent out an email a couple days ago that said go to the website, and you can look at the blog update. I, I looked at it this morning to find out things I didn't know because I don't know everything. It's kind of hard to communicate. They're 13 hours ahead. <clears throat> and so I talked to my wife just before I came down here. Uh, she's totally exhausted but just having a tremendous time. Really encouraged uh, by the ministry. She said the worship uh, for them uh, has already happened. The worship, she said, it was tremendous. The, the, the room, uh, the, the house they meet in was absolutely packed. Uh, they sang in Japanese and in English. They recited scripture in both. Uh, they had some uh, 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 handouts that had them written so they could both uh, sing and, and uh, see each other's language. And, and so she just said it's tremendous. She's with a family that has three children, husband and wife, three children. The oldest one is six. Uh, she talks very uh, English very well, and so does the, the um, uh, mom. So she has, she's able to communicate. My, my wife is... Um, challenged. She, she is uh, fish challenged, uh, especially raw fish challenged, um, and especially if it's wrapped in seaweed. So she said for breakfast, I, I saw Sam downing an oyster in a half shell for breakfast yesterday, okay? Uh, and, and for breakfast for my wife, the host made her rice balls wrapped in um, seaweed, and she's having a hard time with that. But because my wife is so gracious, the one-year-old was asking for the seaweed off of her plate. So she, she uh, uh, agreed. <laughs> so, yeah, it's everywhere. There, there's a picture uh, on the blog of, uh, from them in a very tall tower in, in uh, uh, Japan, in, in Tokyo. And you can't see it. If you want, I hate to make this kind of an offer, but I'll share it with you live so you can see. But when you take that picture and you pan out or just explode the picture, there, the, all those buildings you see are multiple-story high-rises, and they just go forever and ever. As you just keep expanding the picture and go right and left, it's amazing the, the amount of people that are in such a small space. I don't think I saw a single-story building anywhere. They're all multiple stories, and they're just tons and tons of people uh, in that very small area. So they've gone from Tokyo to um, uh, Tagasaki, which is a little bit northwest, um, 
And VBS starts on Wednesday. I think when they originally started this, there was 35 kids or something like that for VBS. The last count was 65. Yeah, you who do VBS, yeah, throw 65 kids in a room and have a cross-cultural situation going on at the same time. It ought to be an invigorating experience, right? And so pray for them as that's uh, upcoming. All right, uh, you keep looking at the blog, I'll keep looking, and we'll both learn some things. But they're all doing well. Uh, my, my wife's just very, very encouraged. All right, take your Bible and go to John chapter 19. John 19. Let me pick it up in verse 16. John 19, verse 16. The text says, Though, So then they delivered him to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out, bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in the Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. The soldiers, therefore... When they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier and also his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it and to decide whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, they divided my outer garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own house. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine up on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to come this morning and and to worship you and to learn uh, from your word as we uh, read the text and study and, and have you teach us uh, uh, things that you'd have us know about Christ, our, our Savior, and, and this event. We pray, Lord, that you'd guide us and, and, and direct us. Uh, again, that we would open our eyes to truth and that we'd fall deeper and deeper in love with our Savior, the one who's given himself for us. Exalt yourself, lift up Christ, we pray in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, obviously, we are uh, continuing here in our study of the book of John, looking at the crucifixion. But most specifically, what we're doing is we're really looking at the person uh, that's upon that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God who became flesh, the one who came from heaven to earth, who who dwelt among sinful men. 
the one who suffered greatly and died a vicarious substitutionary sacrificial death for his people. This is the very same one that Isaiah saw in chapter 6, sitting on a throne highly, and li- highly exalted and lifted up in the train of his Rome, filled the heavenly temple. The one who's surrounded there by the seraphim who covered their face and cry out to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the one who's the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power. The one who, when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This one is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, from whom all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that by himself he might come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greater you understand the pre-incarnate glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's dying there on the cross, the greater you understand the sacrifice of that one who is on that cross, the sacrifice that one is willingly making on your behalf. Now, it's uncommon, but it does happen that a great man would give his life for another man. But this is the Son of God. This is the creator. This is the sustainer of the universe. And the fact that he is giving himself, his life for sinful men and women like you and I is really incomprehensible. Paul argued that in Romans chapter 5. He said, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man, someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while we were... Yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, although evil men and devils are doing their work, they are displaying their great evil towards the innocent Lord Jesus Christ here on the cross, our focus is on Him. So we can do just as we have just sung. Look at this cross. And look at the one who is dying upon that, that cross. And seeing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, the sad reality is most people don't do that. Most men don't do that. Most men don't look carefully at the cross. No, they look carefully at the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't consider carefully the one who's dying there. For most men, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. It's foolishness. It's an impediment that keeps them from salvation. Because in their pride, they will not humble themselves before the one who is the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords, who dies this seemingly uh, ignoble death. Therefore, the reality is that most men will lose their eternal soul and face God in judgment because they've not carefully looked at the cross. And again, they've not carefully looked specifically at the one who is there dying. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the Lord of glory, the King of all kings. And the last place that you'd expect to find a king is dying on a cross, but there he is. He's been tortured, he's been humiliated, he's been mocked, beaten, spat upon, he's bleeding. The Romans looked on someone who was uh, crucified with utmost contempt. 
The fact the cross was so offensive to them, they wouldn't allow their own citizens to be crucified upon it literally for almost anything. They just, Roman citizens were uh, left out of uh, suffering death by, the, by crucifixion. And in the culture, the word crucify or crucifixion was so culturally taboo, it was so offensive to the sensibilities of the people of the day, it was never repeated. Uh, we kind of throw the word out there, crucify or crucifixion. In the culture at the time, that's really an obscenity to the Romans. It was never spoken about in public and never spoken about in polite community. Culture didn't want anything to do with crucifixion. The culture didn't want to hear about it. The culture didn't want to know about it. The culture didn't want to talk about it. Therefore, to the Gentile mind, to the culture, speaking of a crucified Savior is absolutely beyond foolishness. The Jews, uh, they detested Roman persecution, the practice of uh, crucifixion, not only for its cruelty, but in large part because the Romans had used it so much against the Jewish people. And now what's interesting is that the, the Jews viewed the victim who was crucified with even more contempt than the Gentiles did. And again, Gentiles held crucified individuals to the utmost contempt because it was used only for the most detestable of people. But for the Jews, they felt that anyone who was crucified or hung on a tree was cursed by God, damned by God, under God's judgment. comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 21, 22, and 23. So the contempt that the Gentiles had for a crucified individual was exponentially exceeded by the Jews to believe that crucified individuals, or they believe that crucified individuals were actually under the curse of God. Therefore, in the Jewish mindset, uh, a crucified Messiah, a crucified Savior is a tremendous stumbling block. To believe in a cursed Messiah is something they could not accept. To believe that their Messiah would be smitten of God and afflicted, as it says in Isaiah 53, 4, was a message completely opposite to what they could handle or what they expected. Again, to the Greeks, the crucified Savior was foolishness. It was actually the word foolish uh, is moronic. It was moronic to them. Uh, the Greeks found the message that uh, Paul preached about the cross completely ridiculous. Power in a crucified criminal. They found it ridiculous for that level, and they found it ridiculous because they're the ones in all power. They're the ones that put people on the cross. For any man to stop and believe that uh, the one whom the Romans had abjectly conquered and overwhelmed and put him to death on the cross was anybody significant, to take any kind of stock in that person being worthy of any kind of serious consideration, again, would have been seen in the culture as madness. Therefore, in the culture, the proclamation of Christ crucified would have been seen as utterly insane, completely contradicting to, uh, a complete contradiction to prevailing rational thought. So again, the Jews had no interest in a crucified Messiah. The Gentiles had no interest in weakness or conquered individuals. Therefore, both groups saw, Gentiles and Jews, saw the idea of Jesus crucified of anything of significance. They saw that as absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Yet we know it's this person and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the central tenet or the central message of the New Testament gospel. That's why... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. As the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his cross 
is the dividing line for all human history. And what you do with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ while you have breath determines your eternal destiny. Jesus Christ and his cross is the dividing line. It is the issue. He is the issue. Now the fallen man, fallen mind of man thinks his wisdom is greater than God's wisdom because God's wisdom conflicts with his own thinking. Therefore, again, the fallen mind of man, uh, the fact that God would take human form, that God would come into this world, God would take human form, God would be crucified and then raised from the dead in order to provide forgiveness of men's sins, reconciling God and man, allowing man to have entrance into heaven because of that one act, that idea is far too simple. Therefore, again, fallen man looks at the message of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ on the cross and rejects it. Because, again, fallen man in his pride will not humble himself and accept the fact, one, that he's a sinner before a holy God and that there's nothing that he can do to reconcile that relationship. And fallen man in his pride will not accept that one man, Jesus Christ, could die on a piece of wood in some nondescript hill in some nondescript part of the world and thereby determine the eternal destiny of every man who's ever lived. The entire idea is beyond foolishness to the mind of fallen men. The word of the cross, right? The preaching of the message of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ and God's plan and provision for man's reconciliation, man's redemption, man's forgiveness of sin to those who are perishing is foolishness. Apolumai is the word perish. It means to be put out, done away with. It's absolute nonsense to the fallen mind of the fallen man, to the unbeliever who relies on his own fallen human wisdom, who is in the midst of being destroyed, perishing, headed towards eternal misery, eternal judgment. To the natural man, the cross is unacceptable, it's offensive, it's foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Again, 1 Corinthians one twenty two. for indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles, foolishness. But listen to me, we don't have another message. We don't have anything else to say to this world. And Paul, in his day, refused to give people what they expected to hear or what they wanted to hear. He just gave them the truth. He did not preach to felt needs. And the reality is things haven't changed a bit. There's nothing nothing new under the sun. Uh, The preaching of Christ crucified was a message then that was seen as foolishness. And it's a message now that is seen in the same manner. It's foolishness to the culture. It doesn't meet the expectation or the felt need of the hearer of the day, uh, uh, the hearers in the culture. But while it's foolishness then, foolishness now, it's the same power to save. It didn't hinder then, it doesn't hinder now, this proclamation of the gospel for God to use that proclamation and the work that Christ transacted upon the cross to save those who believe the message. To those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom of God. That's why Paul goes on in the next half of the chapter, the beginning of the chapter, uh, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. It says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come superior to speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the message, uh, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen to me. The gospel is everything. It's not just something good. The gospel is everything. It is the answer to men's problems, to all of men's problems, to all men, to all of their problems. Fallen man can't solve his own problems. I can give you proof. Exhibit one here in my little courtroom scene. Why man can't solve his own problems. He'll never be able to solve his own problems. For 2,000 years, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, and God said, okay, uh, give it a shot. You think you can solve your problems without me? Give it a shot. Exhibit number one, look around you. I rest my case, right? Just look around you. Things are not getting better in the last 2,000 years. Things are getting worse. Man can't solve his problems. Man cannot control the chaos. Chaos in the culture is increasing exponentially. We can see that. Everything is more and more out of control because the truth is man can't contain the chaos in his own heart. He has a fallen heart that's in rebellion against God. Therefore, all of his activities and actions and thoughts are always in rebellion against God. It's chaos everywhere. We used to have a cultural, a cultural Christianity that kind of kept things together a bit. A veneer. You know what veneer is? It's, it's a nice thin layer of, of nice wood over cheap stuff. And that's all it was. It was just a veneer. The veneer is cracking. Depravity is leaking through. Because the world is under God's divine judgment. God has given this culture and this world over to divine judgment, the wrath of abandonment to a depraved mind that does not work. And that mind that rejects the truth is going to believe a lie. And that's where we're at. The gospel is the answer. Then you go, well, no, 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 no. Just give us a little bit more time. We can figure it out. That's what the world says. Well, let me tell you this. Nobody in the last 2,000 years, and even before that, but I'll just go 2,000 years to make it a fair fight, nobody's been able to deal with the issue of death. No matter where they're at. Doesn't matter their political background. Doesn't matter what state they live in. Doesn't matter what country they come from. Nobody's ever been able to deal with the issue of death save this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the gospel is everything. It's not just that Christ died. It's that Christ, what? Rose from the dead. Amen? Right? He's the only hope. The gospel is the only message. It's what the world needs to know. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we should take our stand with the great apostle. Determined to know nothing among this generation except Jesus Christ in him crucified. Again, it's an offensive message. It's a foolish message. It's a stumbling block to many. It's a complete antithesis to what men want to hear. It's a message that's not seeker-sensitive or user-friendly. It's just the message of the truth. It's the message the world needs to hear. Christ in him crucified. And again, it's the only message that has the power to transform, the power to save. It's the only message that gives men hope. We cannot abandon the gospel. We cannot be ashamed of it in any fashion. It's mankind's only hope. Therefore, I think it would be in our best interest and in the interest of all, all men who uh, are concerned to receive the gospel message, repent, believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is on Calvary's cross if you value your immortal soul. And stop and take in what's going on there. Carefully consider 
Again, we just sang this earlier, right? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain account but loss and poor contempt on all my pride, right? So says Watts. Stop, carefully consider the cross, the most important event of all of human history. The person of Jesus Christ, the most important person who's ever lived. As I told you before, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from the human side is the greatest act of human wickedness ever enacted upon uh, another human being. The vilest expression of human depravity. Spurgeon once said of it this, he said, The crucifixion of Christ was the crowning sin of our race. The foulest crime which the Son has ever beheld. Son, S-U-N. The crucifixion of Christ is the crowning sin of our race, the foulest crime which the Son has ever beheld. Evil, wicked men have attempted to kill Jesus ever since he was born, and now they're about to succeed. From God's side, the cross is the greatest revelation of God's redemptive love and ultimate expression of his love for sinful, rebellious mankind. Paul again said the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We who, because of God's kindness, who have surveyed the cross, we look at the cross, we see the Lord of glory there, we see see God incarnate who's come from heaven to earth, and we see that he's come out of his tremendous love for us. He's come out of his tremendous love for us, he's come to be our willing substitute. And we understand that he is dying there to redeem us. To redeem us from our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Galatians 3, uh, 3 verse 13. We understand there at the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, again, we sing with the hymn writer, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers around his head sublime. So when we have a right perspective on the cross, we're keeping up with John's desire to, in this whole situation, look at him, look at Christ, keep our eye on Christ. John says, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing might have life in His name. And again, it's only those who look to Christ that can have that life. It's only those who look at Christ and come to a proper understanding of Him and see their need of Him can experience the eternal salvation that God desires for men to have through Him. Now again, as we turn our attention to the text, there is a lot here. There's a lot here. Much uh, for us to consider, much we won't have time to get to. But again, as I just said and I've said previously, John writes to focus our attention on Christ. He wants to draw the reader's attention to Christ, to the glory of Christ, the deity of Christ. That's why he puts in certain things and he leaves certain things out of his narrative. And I told you the last time, one of the ways that John does this in the text, in his account of the death of Christ upon the cross, he's going to bring forth four aspects of the cross to magnify the person and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one was the fulfillment of prophecy. 
the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, there's about 28 or so uh, specific prophecies that were fulfilled on the day of Christ's crucifixion, uh, let alone some would say perhaps up to 330 Old Testament uh, prophecies regarding Christ and his first coming. And all the prophecies concerning Christ and his suffering are fulfilled here at the cross on this day in every detail. Prophecies from the book of Genesis, from the book of Exodus, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, from Daniel, from Zechariah, and others. And all of this proves that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on Golgotha was something foreseen, something predetermined by God hundreds and thousands of years before the, uh, a thousand years at least before the crucifixion uh, actually took place. God had planned it all out. Every part of the transaction was arranged by the divine eternal counsels, down to the minutest details, all revealed from God to the prophets, from first to last, all foreknown, everything carried out in accordance to the divine settled plan and design of God himself. So in the fullest sense, when Christ died, according to 1 Corinthians 15.3, in the fullest sense, he died according to the Scripture. He's fulfilling the prophecy. Therefore, again, that fulfillment of prophecy is strong evidence for the divine authority of the Word of God. As the prophets foretold not only Christ's death, but all the particular details of his death. That shows the inspiration of the Scripture. It shows that nothing of this is happening by chance. None of it is happening by coincidence. That, that kind of chance or thinking it's just perhaps coincidence, that kind of thinking is absurd and preposterous. Again, I, I read somewhere that somebody did some calculations, mathematical calculations, according to the 330 or so Old Testament prophecies regarding Christ in his first coming that he fulfilled. And they said for all of these 330 prophecies to happen by chance in one person would be one in the 84th to the with a hundred zeros behind it chance one in 84th a hundred zeros behind it chance i mean it's completely incomprehensible we, we, we can't there's no way to get our minds around that basically what he's saying is it's utterly impossible for all of these prophecies to be fulfilled in one person therefore the only rational account is to accept the inspiration of the Word of God. The prophets foretold the particulars of the crucifixion because they were inspired writers of God. They were directed by the person of the Holy Spirit who knows everything and foresees everything. And he guided the pen of the prophet to write down everything that God had ordained concerning Christ that God wanted men to know. Exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this man Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, by the hands of godless men and put him to death and God raised him up again putting it into the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power so again to believe that all of the repeated fulfillments of prophecies concerning Christ's death his clothing his thirst his pierced side his pierced hands and feet uh, the bones his bones not being broken as a result of chance not design requires more unreasonable faith than just to accept the clear teaching of the Word of God that it's prophetic truth, because that's what it is. It's prophetic truth. Now, we looked at some of these fulfilled prophecies as we uh, worked our way through the text last week, which on first blush, you just kind of read through it, and you think, well, maybe this is just a historical narrative. Well, it is historical nar narrative, but, but it's full of uh, prophetic truth, fulfilled truth. So that the details that John's listing are really 
fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, both verbal and typological. As Jesus fulfilled all the redemptive promises contained in the Old Testament. And I pointed these, a number of these out as we uh, uh, worked our way through the text. But let's just go back and do a very quick review. Go up to, uh, start in uh, at verse 16. Verse 16. So he, which was Pilate, delivered Jesus to them. That's the Roman soldiers to be crucified. I told you in the authorized version, the King James Version, it adds this, they delivered him to them to be crucified and they took Jesus and led him away. So there's Jesus like a lamb being led to slaughter. Comes out of the book of Isaiah. He's not being forcefully driven. He's not being whipped there, dragged there. He's going willfully. I told you that typically men who were headed to crucifixion would fight. They'd put up a struggle. They'd resist, but not Jesus. He goes willingly. No man takes his life from him. He's laying his down. He's laying down his life freely. Verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in the Hebrew is called Golgotha. Here again, you have prophecy being fulfilled. He went out. I told you that's a picture of Old Testament typology of the, according to Moses. The, the law said that the sin offering had to be taken outside the camp. And that's what happened. Jesus is being taken outside the city. Excuse me, to uh, be the sin offering. And the fact that he's bearing his own cross. I told you that's an allusion to Isaac uh, out of the book of Genesis. Isaac was carrying the wood on his back that was going to be used uh, for the sacrifice. Uh, and, and then for Isaac, uh, there was a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket. Uh, for Jesus, there's no substitute. He is the substitute. He is the one that picture is looking forward to. When Isaac says, where is the lamb? Fast forward to the New Testament, and there he is on the page of the Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John answers that question. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to the place called a skull, which in Hebrew, uh, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Verse 18, they crucified him. Now, I told you that's a violation of both Jewish and Roman law. Uh, there was supposed to be days in between judgment and execution of any man in case any uh, new evidence needed to be heard. But in the case of Jesus, it goes right from judgment to the execution. Again, fulfilling prophecy out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There's nothing in between. There's no waiting period. Normally, uh, the judicial system was set up to preserve life. This is a mockery of judicial justice. They want to take his life. There's no concern by anybody about saving the life of Jesus. They just want him dead. Again, there they crucified him. Last time I went through and I gave you the historical understanding of crucifixion, where it started, what it was like. Gave you some kind of the physical understanding of crucifixion. But, and then I also told you when it comes to the physical side of crucifixion, that crucifixion was devised in such a manner to produce the maximum amount of pain with the least immediate destruction of life. Slow, long, agonizing death. That was the point of crucifixion. Enduring, excruciating pain over a long period of time. That's the point. Pain from the scourging. The agony of having the nails driven into the hands and feet. To be exposed to the hot sun. uh, Hanging in a fashion that makes uh, breathing almost impossible. Having to either push back up or pull on the nails in the hand to get into a place where he could take a breath. And the whole thing was horrific. The whole thing's only relieved by death. And some men would not succumb for days. 
And I also told you that the physical suffering of Christ, while it was great, the greatest suffering the Lord Jesus endured on the cross was not the physical suffering, it's the spiritual suffering. It's when he became the sin-bearer. When God poured out his wrath upon him in the place of everyone who would ever repent and believe upon Christ. They crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Again, another fulfillment of Scripture. Not only is the fact that he's being numbered with the transgressors comes again out of the book of Isaiah because Jesus is absolutely innocent. The men on either side of him are guilty. But also that being lifted up is a type. It's a type of the the bronze serpent that Moses made in in the book of Numbers. You remember the story, Israel's out in the desert complaining in the wilderness uh, against God. The Lord sends fiery serpents among the people. They bite the people. So many of the people of Israel died. Uh, Numbers 21, 6 and following. The people acknowledge their guilt uh, against God. They come to Moses and say, we've sinned. We've, uh, we've spoken against the Lord. Can you intercede for us so that he would remove the, the serpent? So Moses intercedes for the people. In response to Moses, the Lord said, make a bronze serpent, set it on a standard. It shall come about that when everyone who is bitten looks upon it, he shall live. Moses did that. The people repented. They looked upon the serpent and they lived. While Jesus says in John chapter 3, that incident is a picture of me. He referred to that, right? It's a typological prediction of his own death. John 3 verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Something that Jesus said repeatedly, that he would be lifted up, lifted up in his death, right? Uh, 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 Jewish uh, execution was casting down and stoning. But he says, no, I'm going to be lifted up because that's the fulfillment of the Scripture. We also look down in verses 22 and, or 23, 24, very specifically fulfillment of Scripture. It says, uh, verse 23, the soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment, made four parts of it, uh, one part to every soldier, also took the tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven on, on peace. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it and decide whose it shall be, that the Scripture, John says, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments and among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, that comes out of Psalm 22. And we spent a little bit of time in Psalm 22 also. So listen, fulfilled prophecy speaks to the reality that God is the one who's over the events of the cross. God is the one who's over the events of the cross. He's directing the whole thing to its desired outcome. And fulfilled prophecy glorifies Christ because it proves that he is the Messiah. He, He is the one that the Old Testament foretold would come. And fulfilled prophecy, again, proves that everything the Bible says is absolutely true. It can be believed. It can be trusted. God, out of Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is in charge here. Fulfilled prophecy glorifies the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Proves that he is the Messiah. Now the second thing that John points to uh, here in his uh, rendering of of the death of Christ, his account of the crucifixion, is the inscription. It's the sign that's placed over his head. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between, verse 19, and Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Verse 20, therefore, the inscription, 
therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, this is really a fascinating portion of Scripture, detailing the uh, a, a fascinating detail of, of the scriptural account of the crucifixion. And again, it's another uh, evidence of the fact that God is superintending. He's directing uh, the events uh, at, at the cross. And again, he's using wicked men to declare his glory. He's using wicked men to declare his glory and the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to me. When you look at that, that, superscript, that, that inscription, that sign, what you need to understand is right there, the father is protecting the glory of his son at the cross. That's the issue. The father is protecting the glory of his son at the cross during the crucifixion. Because Pilate is going to write accurately a description who is on that cross. He's going to write it in three different languages so everybody would understand clearly exactly who is dying there. And no one could fail in understanding who is dying there. No one could fail in understanding. It's putting, being put out there for everyone to see. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And again, that title that's placed over our Lord makes it absolutely plain and unmistakable the Lord Jesus is being crucified as a king. Because again, that's indeed who he is. He is a king. He is the king of kings. Before he was even born, the angel Gabriel came to to Mary and said, The Lord God shall give to him, speaking of her son to be born, Jesus, The Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Almost as soon as he was born, there came wise men from the east saying, Where is he that has been born king of the Jews? The very week before his uh, uh, crucifixion, uh, the multitude who accompanied the Lord in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Even today, in this present time, current uh, believing Jews believe that when Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, he, he will come, the son of David, but he's also going to come as a king. And you'll remember all through the Lord's ministry, his earthly ministry is always speaking about the kingdom of heaven or the, the kingdom of God, and so too is John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Answer, because the king is present. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is hand. For this one is referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Lord Jesus, in his first sermon, Matthew 4, verse 17, From that time Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You remember in the, in the conversation that Jesus actually told Pilate that he wasn't king, right? He was indeed a king, John 18, 33 and 37. He was a king of a kingdom, unlike any kingdom of the world that Pilate would understand, but nevertheless, he was a true king, the true kingdom. Ruled over subjects. Right? He, he ruled over subject. He, 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 that's why he was born. That's why he came into the world. That's why he lived. And that's now how he will be crucified as a king. And when he returns, when he comes again, comes as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He'll rule this world 
he'll put down all of his enemies. I read it at the beginning. It's worth a second read. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire upon his head. Are many diadems. Is a name written upon him which no one else knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who he is presently. Daniel foretold that when the Messiah would come, he would be like the stone cut without hands and strike the statue, Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he'd crush that statue. And that statue, you might remember, represented the kingdoms of the world. And Christ would come and <clears throat> crush the statue and sweep away all the world's kingdoms. He'd become that great mountain that would fill the whole earth, and Christ sweeps away all the kingdoms of the earth, and he becomes the king of all kings, the lord of his own, all, all lords. He becomes the king of his own kingdom, king of the world, Daniel chapter 2. And that's why Paul says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now normally men who were executed for their crimes were paraded through the city. They were dragging their cross. There'd be a person in front of that man calling out, identifying the crime that this person was guilty of in order to put fear in the hearts of the people about violating the Roman rule. But again, Jesus committed no crime. Jesus is absolutely innocent. Therefore, God causes in his sovereignty, Pilate, to declare the truth of who Jesus is. And really to declare his innocence. The the only, quote-unquote, crime that Jesus has committed is the fact that he is the king of the Jews. Again, remember, at least on six different occasions, Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. So Pilate had repeatedly declared Jesus legally not guilty. Yet Pilate is being blackmailed by the Jews into consenting to the murder of an innocent man. They threatened to report Pilate to Caesar. Back in uh, verse 12, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So again, Pilate's being blackmailed. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that Jesus has committed no crime. Nevertheless, not only has he allowed Jesus to be brutalized with his scourging, but he's going to allow Jesus to be murdered. He knows it's wrong. He knows he can't put some crime on the inscription because Jesus has 
committed no crime. Again, the Lord being absolutely innocent. So again, divinely directed, divinely ordained, Pilate proclaims the innocence of Jesus Christ. And he proclaims the reality that Jesus is the King of Israel. Now, Pilate's a wicked man. He's not doing this to fulfill Scripture. But again, God is superseding. God is causing even this wicked man to act in a manner that glorifies him and glorifies Christ. Pilate, from his perspective, he's doing this because he loathes the Jewish people. He loathes the Jewish people and most especially the Jewish religious leaders. So I think in an act of human vengeance, he writes, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. He does this in a way to try to get back at the Jewish religious leaders because he knows the Jewish religious leaders have delivered Jesus uh, to him over without cause. They've delivered him over because of envy. So in this moment of human vengeance by Pilate, he remembered, right? He remembered the religious leaders had called out, right, for Jesus' death. They cried out, therefore, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. Now, again, that was one of the first accusations that the Jews brought before Pilate. They claimed Jesus was a king. He was a a rival. He was a threat to uh, Caesar. And and Pilate's put in this position where he's got to do something, but he knows Jesus is innocent. So here, when he comes to the inscription and an exercise, I think, of sarcastic irony, he exercises what he sees as vengeance upon them. Not only that, but he adds, Pilate adds another little jab here along the way, referring to Jesus as from Nazareth. Where's Nazareth? Nowhere. Just an utterly insignificant, unimportant place. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, uh, the question came up when Jesus was the, maybe the Messiah. It comes from Nazareth. The question was, can, any, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Insignificant, nondescript, absolute nowhere. So Pilate's mockingly say, okay, here's your king. An absolute nobody from nowhere. A man who at this time is so disfigured by his beating, so brutalized, he's nearly unrecognizable as a man because he has been so horribly mistreated. Pilate says, here's your king. Pilate therefore wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Uh, Verse 20, therefore the inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So Pilate has it recorded in three languages. He does it in triplicate. Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now if you go and look very carefully between the gospel accounts, you'll see there's a bit of variation in what is written. Uh, None of them contradict each other, but no two of them are alike. This is probably has to do with the fact that it is written in three different languages. Some have ventured to conjecture that Mark gives that the Latin inscription, Luke the, the, the Greek, and Matthew and John the Hebrew one. Matthew leaves out the uh, expression of Nazareth, which John mentions because John is going to give the whole inscription because he's the one who's going to narrate uh, the dispute between the, the, the priests and Pilate about what has been written. But the inscription can be read by many. Because the crucifixion is taking place in a very public uh, uh, venue. Therefore, the inscription, uh, therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, 
And it was, again, written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew is the language that every Jew obviously would know. Uh, Latin is the language of the Romans, the ruling nation over the entire world. And Greek was the common language of the, uh, of the area in the eastern countries, uh, really the language of the educated. So again, the inscription, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, is written so that everyone would be able to understand who is on that cross. The Roman soldiers, the Greek proselytes, the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews from Galilee, Judea, every part of the earth that assembled there for the Passover. Everybody would know. Everybody who passed by the cross would be able to look up and understand and spread the truth that this man who's dying there in the middle on Calvary has been put to death here at the Passover by the Romans. This man is Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. I do think it's interesting to note that as we talked about it just a little bit last time, there's all this verb, physical abuse, obviously, but there's all this verbal abuse. Jesus is receiving while he's on the cross by, the, by the, those who pass by and by the Roman soldiers and even by the man, unbelievably, one of the men that's next to him on a cross. Luke twenty two thirty six. the soldiers mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now also there was an inscription above him, this is king, the king of the Jews. Verse 39 of that chapter, Luke 22. And one of the criminals who was hanged there with him, hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save us, save yourself. <clears throat> Verse 40, but the other... <clears throat> excuse me, answered and rebuked him, said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, referring to Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Luke 22, verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Even a man who's dying, a criminal's death on the cross, can look at Jesus and realize that he is the king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Pilate wrote an inscription also put on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, the inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, verse 21. And so the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. So the Jews don't like what Pilate writes. The Jews, again, to them, the very idea that this man from this nondescript, insignificant village who's dying as a criminal on the cross would be their king. To them, it's ludicrous. It's an affront to them. It's an affront to them as the religious leaders. It's an affront to them as the nation. That's how they would see it. But again, Pilate exercises his contempt for the Jewish people, and he applies that this is the only kind of king you are worthy to receive. And look real carefully what it says. And it says, so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate. Uh, Arthur Pink uh, brings this out, which is helpful. This is the first and the only time these men are, are termed this, the chief priests of the Jews. And it's kind of like the Holy Spirit is intimating that God no longer owned them as his priests. They having rejected the Messiah, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has set them apart. Therefore, they are Israel's official religious leaders. They serve the Jews, but they don't serve him. They don't serve God. 
I mean, again, these men hated Pilate and his insult. His insult, here's Jesus and Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's a crushing insult to their pride. Again, that a, a crucified criminal uh, would be publicly designated as the king of the Jews. So they want the, they want the governor to rewrite it, reword the inscription. They want the governor to rewrite it, rewrite it so that Jesus would appear as something more than, no more than just an empty imposter, a boaster. Verse 22, Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. Well, here for once he stands up to them. Now the truth is God would not have allowed Pilate to change what he had written because unknowingly to Pilate he's being used by God to declare the truth and the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed Son of God. The one who is dying on that cross is indeed Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, and God is not going to allow Pilate to change that because God there in that declaration is protecting the glory of his son. That's the point. Pilate becomes the unwitting prophet of the truth of the gospel of the person of Jesus Christ, just like previously when we look at uh, high priest Caiaphas had unwittingly uh, said of Jesus, it's expedient for one man to die for the, for the people. He didn't know what he was saying. And Pilate doesn't know the testimony that he's bearing to Christ's true kingship, his true kingly office. Again, it's just another example of God superintending, God using sinful men to accomplish his sovereign good purposes. Now, neither Pilate nor the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, believe that Jesus was a king, let alone the king of Israel. Yet again, the animosity between them has caused Pilate, the governor, to write the inscription exactly the way God ordained it. This is Jesus Christ, the King, the King of Israel. King of all kings, Lord of all lords. The one whom before again every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the King to the glory of God the Father. Verse 23, again, the soldiers, therefore, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, and every part of the soldier, every part to the soldier, and also the tunic. Uh, the tunic was seamless, woven in one place, or one piece. Again, the soldiers are, are just finished their work, right? They've just nailed uh, the Lord to the cross. They've placed the title over his head. They've dropped him into the hole where the cross would stand. Now they do what they do. They, they, they dispense with the property of the, of the victims. They divided the clothes of the criminal. They always did that. Pretty common. Clothes of the criminal belonged to the, uh, uh, of a criminal being put to death, belonged to the, the executioners. Most likely they have stripped Jesus naked. Before they've nailed his hands and feet to the cross, they've laid his clothes to one side, finished their work, and now they return to the clothing, divided them up. Now, it's amazing to me if you read, there's an amazing amount of spiritualizing of that text. Really, more specifically, an amazing amount of spiritualizing regarding the clothing. I mean, men, all kinds of men try to bring out so-called deeper, significant meanings of the garments. It's absolutely unnecessary. They are just what they are, their clothing. It says exactly what it says. There's no deeper significance one part going here, one part going here, one part going here, and the world. I mean, it's just nonsensical. You have four soldiers, 
Or you have four, four soldiers, you have five pieces of clothing. Verse 24, they said for one, to one another, do not let us tear it. Let's cast lots for it, decide whose it shall be. And then John interposes this, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, we're, we're looking at fulfilled scripture. We're looking at Christ. They divided my outer garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Again, Psalm 22. Again, all of this is happening. The scripture might be fulfilled. Uh, all this, again, is happening and shows us that God is in control of this entire situation. Just like God is in control of every situation in this present world. He is superintending. He is directing every minute detail. He's working out all of his eternal uh, counsels in time. And the Roman soldiers have absolutely no idea that they're actually supplying evidence of the truthfulness uh, of the Scripture. They're just acting out of personal uh, uh, greed, out of personal gain. They just want this piece of clothing. They don't want to tear it up not knowing that they, like all men, are instruments in God's hand for accomplishing God's purposes. Again, Psalm 22, written a thousand years before the event. God declares what the soldiers are going to do. They're going to divide the Savior's garments among themselves, cast lots for them, fulfilled to the very letter. Because the truth is, the reality is, the one who's hanging there on the cross beyond all shadow of doubt, is the Messiah. He's the one whom the Old Testament prophets predicted would come. He's the one who, in Genesis 3, God said to the serpent, one will come, a seed from the woman, and he'll crush your head. That's him. So the glory of Christ that John is drawing our attention to, the glory of Christ is seen through the fulfillment of all this Old Testament Scripture, The glory of Christ is seen through the declaration of the Father that the entire world may know that this one here in this middle cross, this is Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And the third thing that John brings out here is the glory of Christ is seen in the compassionate care that he demonstrates towards others at the cross while he is suffering greatly. Stop and think about that. He he is suffering greatly. Yet he's not focused on himself. He's focused on others. Verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but they were standing by the cross, Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Verse 26. When uh, Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple uh, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. But we're going to stop right there because there's a lot for us to unpack in this next event that John draws our attention to. All right, Lord willing, we'll look at it next time. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for you, our God. We're so thankful for Christ, our Savior. We're so thankful for the glory of our Christ that you have put on display and draw our attention to him so that we might have hope we might know where our help comes from that we might have confidence that you are in charge of all events these at the cross and everything even in our day we are bid not to look at men but we are bid to look up 
to trust not in our own wisdom, but to trust in you, to rest in you. And we pray that we would do that in a greater fashion. Help our love for you to grow, our confidence in your word also to grow. Help us to rest in the fact that you are a God who has loved us and sent your son Jesus Christ to save us, to redeem us, to reconcile the relationship. That you are a God who has all things under control, working all things to promote, to point people to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.